Greetings to all of you listening to this message. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I am here to speak to you as the oracles of God. This is what is commanded by the Holy Spirit. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In 2 Peter chapter 4. I do not prepare my messages with any significant amount of labor or time in order to facilitate God speaking through me. All I do is I seek for God to lead me to a chapter almost every day of the week, often through the casting of lots before God. That only works if you're walking in holiness in a way that is pleasing to God and you're not doing it as a game and you're serious about hearing from God. And then I meditate on the chapter I find, as I have today, for a half an hour making notes in that half hour. And immediately after that, I preach as I am now. It's been a few days since I've given a message, so I also want to mention the various passages I received, not only the one today. Usually, in fact, I think all the time, there has been a theme from the various passages on the days that I have not given a message from those passages. So first of all, today, I want to read from the chapter that I received which is Hosea chapter 4. So I will begin by reading Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be like the people, like the priest, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks and their staff declareth unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err and they have gone a whoring from under their God. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and turn and burn incense upon the hills, under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom, and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery, for they themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend. 
and come not ye on the Gilgal, neither go ye up to Bethaven, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slided back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom. Continually, her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wine have bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Before I continue to speak, I just want to have a brief drink of water. I tend to have the need of that towards the beginning of a message, especially after reading a chapter. In this particular passage, <clears throat> which is addressed to the nation of Israel, this is the northern part of the tribe of Israel. The other part of Israel was known as Judah and was only the tribe of Judah. But Israel and the tribes to the north of Judah had fallen into great apostasy. And there's an emphasis here on certain things in this chapter that I want to point out. In the very first verse, it says, because there is no truth nor mercy nor knowledge of God in the land. That is the cause of their state of corruptibility, of corruptibleness. That is resulting in lying and killing and stealing and things that are absolutely known to be the signs of a nation about to fall apart. There's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God. Notice the order. First it is truth, then it is mercy and the knowledge of God. Now, before I go on to explain the key things that stand out in this chapter and explain about this order of truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God, I just briefly want to point out that the other passages of scriptures that I received previously, on Monday, it was Psalms 147. And there was a particular verse that stood out in that psalm, and that was verse 11, where it says, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. And the day before that, actually two days before that, on Saturday, it was Isaiah chapter 5. And I said in verses 13 to 16 in commentary on that chapter, as a result of rebellion against God, his people were cut off from the knowledge which points in the direction of life and blessing. So they were drawn in the opposite direction towards hell. Such people are filled with joy, rejoicing but their joy comes out of a root of pride that is in rebellion against who God is in his holiness. And I won't say anything more about these particular passages of Scripture. I want to get back to what I want to bring out here on the order of truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God. There are other verses in this chapter that point out that they had rejected the knowledge of God. For example, in verse 11, Cordum and wine and new wine take away the heart. 
And it says that they didn't take heed to the Lord in another part of this chapter 4. I won't bother to try to find that right now. I do have various verses that in this chapter are of significance. First of all, though, I want to explain what I was just mentioning about truth, first of all. There was no truth among the inhabitants of the nation of Israel. I want to define the word truth briefly. I could talk for a long time on this word, but I will just say this, that if you look up the word truth in various dictionaries, you will find that it basically means that which is real. So when you look up the definition of the word real and reality in various dictionaries, you will basically find that it means that which cannot be changed, that which is everlasting, that which is indestructible. So reality, which is defined as what truth is, is a quality that is everlasting and indestructible, that is unchangeable. What possible quality could that be? It is who God is. There are various verses in the New Old Testament that use the phrase the God of truth. In 1 John, or is it 2 John, pardon me, it defines God as truth. When it talks about the truth that abides and lives within us forever. And it says in 1 John that I have no greater joy than that my children walk in truth. So what is the quality of the being of God that is everlasting and indestructible and unchangeable? That quality is the integrity of, ultim of the ultimate perfection of love. It may sound like a very profound statement, but what does that mean? It is the quality of the ultimate, the integrity and the purity of the ultimate perfection of love. Well, we need to define what love is. And I will define love in such a way that you could not have a higher definition of love. And anything that would be defined as less would therefore not be the ultimate perfection of love in the way I will now define it. Word of God says that God is love in 1 John twice. God is love. And it's using the Greek word agape, which is the highest form of love. Love to is totally free in its choice. It is totally self-originating. It is not motivated by outward input like a robot. It truly comes from the inner core of who one is. It is a free choice, but it is a choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification that may be a good choice, but is less than the highest lasting good. The being of God always chooses the highest lasting good. As such, God's being has complete, complete integrity and ultimate purity in love, an integrity that is totally pure to always choose the highest lasting good. And as such, 
God is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to love in the way I've just defined it. God is love. And God is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to this quality of his being. If God were to be anything less, he would not be God. Because he would allow us a measure of corruptibility within his being, which would not allow for a quality that could be everlasting and indestructible. The only quality that can contain unlimited power and life without being corrupted by it, or without that life and power being dissipated by lesser choices that would be corrupt, is this ultimate perfection of love that has complete purity of integrity to judge the slightest that is contrary to choosing the highest lasting good. This aspect of God's love is the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of his love. It is the foundation for God to be able to express his love in creativity that can go on forever in greater and greater enlargements of fulfillment and creativity and never end. But if there was not this integrity in love, there would be corruptibility that would not allow this to be the case. So when I define the word truth, I define it as the integrity of that quality that only can contain unlimited power and unlimited life without the tra a slightest trace of corruptibleness that can ever go on without end in life that is totally fulfilling in creativity without end in greater and greater enlargements of that love and creativity. Truth is the integrity of what is constructive on the greater meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And that is only found in the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love. There's another verse in Isaiah that says, God is a God of judgment. And yet I've heard a pastor say that God is not a God of judgment and teach that or make those statements in his lack of knowledge. God is a God of judgment because God is love. And because his love can only be genuine love if it is totally pure in its integrity to judge what is contrary to love. Now this is the foundation that can also represent the negative symbol. I love to illustrate it this way in math or in nature because we see that all of creation is filled with negatives and positives. And I won't go into that. Even little machines in our cells work on negatives and positives. There's little alternators in our cells that are just like the alternator in a car and look like it and spin around. I won't go into all of that. And it runs on negative and positive. There's negative and positives in everything. But the negative represents a foundation because it's a horizontal line, but it also represents cutting off that which is contrary to pure love. But it is the negative symbol which is a symbol of foundation and of judgment 
against what is contrary to life. That next has the basis for creativity. That creativity is ultimately expressed in the power of God to be able to assure to his creation that they can have destiny that is everlasting. It comes out of the foundation of his holiness. How is that so, you say? Well, the ultimate expression of God's love, being so pure, is in the capacity in the being of God to have such love that without violating the integrity of his love, he would be able to transcend in that love with the power to show mercy to his creation without violating the integrity of his love that requires judgment. Which means that within the being of God, there is the capacity to take judgment upon himself for those beings out of indirect temptation through the natural realm that rebel against God. That if they repent, that they can receive his mercy because there is the capacity within the being of God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, to humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and to suffer more than you, a mere creature, by taking your judgment upon himself and the judgment of all creation that repents and receives his mercy upon himself. And to dissipate it by still living a life that is totally always choosing the highest lasting good. This actually happened in the center of history through Jesus Christ. Who was God manifest in a human body that came and suffered on the cross to take judgment upon himself for your sins and mine. If we repent and receive his provision of mercy by asking Jesus Christ to forgive us and to cleanse us up from all sin through his blood so that our soul is made clean and white as snow through his love outpoured in his blood shed as a living sacrifice on the cross, the blood of God himself. So the symbol of the First, you have the foundation representing holiness, which is the negative symbol, a horizontal line. And out of that comes the foundation for creativity, ultimately expressed in the symbol, the plus symbol, the symbol of the cross, springing out of that foundation of that negative symbol. That is the mercy of God. And so we see that mercy comes out of the foundation of truth, ultimately expressed in God's love being so pure that he could actually assure destiny to his creation, that there is within God the power of forgiveness. This was, I believe, definitely perceived from the very time of Adam and Eve till now. That God is holy, that his love is totally pure and requires judgment, and yet that his love is so pure that it can be transcendent with the power to provide mercy through God himself, having the capacity in his being to be a perfect atoning sacrifice because his love is so great and so ultimately pure. 
Some knew this subconsciously, some knew it by revelation, and in a measure intellectually, and others could have easily drawn the conclusion intellectually about it with maybe less revelation. Because it is very clear from the time of Adam and Eve. From the reading of the Old Testament that they recognized that God was the source of forgiveness. They were commanded to take an innocent lamb or another such animal and place their hand on it as a symbol of their sin being transferred onto the animal and then the animal was slain as a symbol of that innocent animal being a sacrifice for their sins. But it makes it very clear that the animal couldn't ultimately cleanse their being of sin, that the source of forgiveness only lies in God. And there are many verses that indicate this. And there's a particular chapter that shows this very strongly, which I cannot tell you what it is right now. One of these days I'll preach on that chapter. It will come out in the casting of lots. But it was very clear from the very beginning that there were those that had a right recognition of who God is in his holiness and in the recognition that his mercy springs out of his holiness, out of the integrity of his being of love, with the power to forgive sin because an animal could only cleanse the physical realm so that God's spirit would be allowed to dwell with him. So they did experience fellowship with God by God dwelling with them, but he could not indwell their soul and spirit until after Christ died, which is why Christ said, ye know him, for he dwells with you, but he shall be in you. And that is the difference after the cross. There is the indwelling of the spirit of God in our very soul and spirit because of the soul and spirit being able to be cleansed of sin, allowing us access directly into the presence of God through our prayers because our soul and spirit could be brought before the presence of God because the way was made for our soul and spirit to be cleansed. Now I explain all of this for a reason. I lay a foundation like this so that I can share with you what is relevant and what God is wanting to say through this passage of Scripture and the few other ones that are very significantly related to this passage of Scripture. It is out of knowing, first of all, the integrity of God's love or the truth of God, the holiness of God, that springs the knowledge of the mercy of God. And it is out of those two things that springs the knowledge of who God is that is not merely an intellectual knowledge, but is a knowledge of the heart. And it is seen in this positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross that represents the horizontal line as the holiness of God and the vertical line as the foundation from which creativity can spring forth in what is positive, assuring to creation destiny that can go on forever because of God's being, having the power to forgive through God himself being the very source of forgiveness because he alone could only be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Another man that was even a very righteous man would not be able to cleanse our soul and our spirit because there would still be thoughts in his mind and in his heart that were sinful. Word of God says concerning Christ that he was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin. And so Christ, as it were, took the first man, Adam, who sinned against God, in which our whole human race as it were, was, for we originated from Adam. And so you and me also were in Adam, as it were, in that sense. And Christ took that first man, Adam, and through his obedience of resisting the temptation of sin and continuing to abide in unity with God, he, as it were, took that first man, Adam, 
and carried him to the cross and nailed him to the cross so that we could have our exchange from the first man, Adam, into the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death on the cross by rising from the dead through the spirit of holiness that was in him, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. In this sense, that when he died on the cross, though he experienced the judgment of God, he never lost faith in the Father. He was always one with the Father. He said, into my hands I commend my spirit. Yes, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he understood that he was still one with the Father, that he was experiencing the forsaking in the sense of having judgment put upon him and experiencing the pain and the suffering of that. But he continued to have an his soul in a state of selfless trust towards the Father. Faith is excluded, boasting, self-glory is excluded by the law of faith, which is a state where our soul is in selfless trust towards God. So Christ remained in that state of selfless trust, which is a state of total purity without rebellion in his being at all. Even when he was slain on the cross, he, as it were, said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he stayed in that state of trust. They kept his state, his, his being, his spirit, his soul, in a state of total purity. Integrity of love. And so he rose from the dead because he maintained his union with the Father because he is God. I guess it's always good to briefly explain to those that are new and haven't been exposed to much understanding is that we, as those that are true followers of Jesus Christ, do not believe in three gods. We believe there is only one God, Word of God says here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is this understanding of the Trinity or the triunity of God, of the one true God. There are three ultimate aspects to all of existence. That which is beyond the time and space realm, the time and space realm, which is the realm of God's creation, and omnipresence, or the filling of all space. For God to be God, he must be in personage beyond time and space, to govern beyond time and space. As such, he is the Father, for the understanding of the word Father is the understanding of the originator of all things. That's basically what the word Father means and also as the one that sees the end from the beginning because he has the experience of time as the Father. He is beyond time and space. So God governs as the Father beyond the time and space realm and sees the end from the beginning. God is expressed in the fullness of who he is in his being into his creation also. The word expression means son. Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. He is God expressed into the time and space realm to communicate with his creation and relate to it. And if he was not in personage in the time and space realm, he would not be God within that realm. But he must be personage in the time and space realm, and as such he is the full expression of the Father or the Son of the Father in the time and space realm. God is the Holy Spirit, is God filling all things in omnipresence with his total intelligence, omniscience, and his total power to create. He is attached to every particle that he has created in all existence and can reverse molecules and atoms 
to go back in time instantly, to cause the resurrection of the dead and whatever else. And I won't go into it any more than that. And so we have one God as the Father, beyond time and space as the Son, governing in the time and space realm and as the Holy Spirit filling all things and holding all things together by his Spirit. Now, let us, now that we've laid a foundation, I want to explain something about these words again, truth, and then mercy, and then the knowledge of God. That's the heart knowledge of God. The genuine fear of God is a choice to recognize God for who he truly is. First, in his holiness, as I've explained, which is the integrity of his love. To acknowledge that, to not fear it, to acknowledge that we are guilty and we deserve the judgment of God. Instead of hiding from that reality, facing the reality of who God is and his holiness. That births a deep awe. It causes us to humble ourselves before God to recognize that we are nothing apart from God. In fact, one of the verses in the Bible that defines the fear of God says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So first you have the negative. You have, in that you have the negative and positive. You've got the positive that he's a fountain of life and the negative to depart from the snares of death. And it is when we recognize the holiness of God that we see that there must be the consequence of death, of judgment, of hell, of suffering because of our deliberate rebellion against God. That brings us to the place of utter awe and of utter humility that brings us to the place of total honesty. And also that brings us to the place of total honesty, which brings us to the place of total humility so that we cry out, and we recognize the power of God to provide mercy because of what he has said in his word, because we know that he can forgive sin without violating the integrity of who he is in his love that requires judgment. And that was known from the time of Adam and Eve that God had the moral capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice and that he therefore had the power to forgive sin. And so people when they come to face this reality, these two aspects of, of ultimate reality, first the negative which is the holiness of God out of which springs the mercy of God. There's no way we can know the greatness of God's mercy to us personally if we don't recognize the greatness of his judgment and of our unworthiness and our guilt before God first, of our utter need of his mercy. It is out of those two things that there's a deep turning from the heart. The fear of God is the choice to recognize these two aspects of the being of God so that a deep turning takes place in the heart that cries out and says, in essence, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a deep turning from the heart that is birthed out of the fear of God. The word of God says that whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. That is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It might be even worth me just reading that verse a bit more in particular in relation to what I'm trying to explain here. So we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 quickly and just read about this. And this is what we read in verse 16. And this is speaking about the nation of Israel having veils on their heart. And it says this, But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. 
Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, and in the Greek, this actually means when the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Context is talking about their heart in verse 15. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. In this passage of Scripture, we see that it is the deep turning of the heart that takes the veil away so that we can behold God for who he truly is and have revelation and knowledge of God that is not merely intellectual, but is true heart knowledge of God. Christ said and compared the Pharisees with a publican. And he said the Pharisees were thanking God that they fasted three days a week, that they paid thighs, and they did all these things. But he said the publican wouldn't even lift up his face, but smote his breast and cried out with all his heart, saying, and beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said the publican went justified before God. It is out of the fear of God, choosing to fear God, choosing to recognize who God is, that is birthed a deep turning in the heart, a circumcision in our heart that takes away the enclosure of self, the deception of self-worship. Whatever you're trusting in is where you're putting your glory and your worth. So if you think that through meditation you can save yourself or through doing some outward performance that somehow you can be acceptable before God, you are in a deceived state of self-worship. If you are this way and you think that by keeping the Ten Commandments out of your own sufficiency, you are accepted before God, you have made the Ten Commandments an idol because you, your focus is really upon yourself because you're trusting in yourself rather than God. It is out of the fear of God that we recognize our utter need of God that causes our inner soul to open up like a clenched fist opens up to a hand in open surrender because it recognizes how great God's love is to us personally, because it has recognized the utter need for the mercy of God in one's life personally. Out of recognizing the holiness of God and our deserved judgment of eternal separation and torment from the presence of God's love. So, when our hand, our soul, opens up like that open hand, then the Spirit of God is like another open hand coming to rest against that open hand, forming two hands of prayer, which also re represent the seed of the new divine nature, which is described in First John, when it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That means that faith is born of God. And when our soul is in a state of open, selfless trust, it is in a state of faith, that is not trusting in itself but in God, that allows the Spirit of God to dwell in our being by receiving his atoning work on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so we are birthed into a new divine nature that continues in that state of selfless trust and begins to throw off the veils of deception that will transform our soul into greater and greater conformity to the image of who God is. So it is out of the fear of God that is birthed the revelation, first of all, of truth, out of which comes the revelation of the mercy of God, which births initially a genuine rebirth experience that brings us into an experiential knowledge of God, of reconciliation and fellowship with God. I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 4. 
continue on this verse. I want to point out the various things in this particular chapter that stand out, that are important to know. It says in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Now this word knowledge in the Hebrew, I want to point out what this word means. It is the word da'ath, knowledge. And it comes from another word, which is yada, which means to know in the Hebrew. That's the other word for the word knowledge. It means to ascertain by seeing. And in the original ancient Hebrew script language, it goes back to 2000 BC. The first letter is the letter of attent door. And the next letter is the letter of an eye. So there is an openness which is symbolized in the tent having an open door. And out of that openness comes an eye that actually sees and experiences God. Remember, it says, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. What? So that we can behold the glory of God and be changed into that same image from glory to glory. So we grow in the knowledge of God by learning to abide in thankfulness, in awe, in who God is, first in his holiness and in his mercy. And so it commands us to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness and worship. It commands us to worship in the beauty of holiness, to be in utter awe of the holiness of God. And out of that, we recognize the love of God. And so we have other verses that say, thy loving kindness is better than life. This is not something that we just enter into by mere intellect, mere assent of the mind. It involves a deep turning in the heart. And for this to continue and for us to grow in this relationship of coming into a greater and greater intimacy of knowing God and his love requires that we spend quality time in prayer seeking God so that we grow in our identity with God. It requires waiting on God. That is, learning to cease from our own self-initiated ways before God where we can so easily be presumptuous in what we mutter before his holy presence. And just being still and being awe of who God is. As it says in Ecclesiastes 5, God is in heaven and thou on earth, therefore let thy words be few. Let us be in awe of who God is. Let us be still and know that he is God. And just allow ourselves to settle into the reality of whose presence we're in. Until all of those things that are of self and of pride are dissipated and brought down. And there's a true humility and a true honesty that brings forth a deep turning in the heart that results in revelation. You know, there's another verse that says, Thy doctrine shall distill as the dew. Dew reflects light. And doctrine speaks of the Spirit of God distilling in our heart in such a way that there's the reflection of light or the reflection of the light of God in our being so that we see who he is and the beauty of his holiness and are filled with thankfulness in that knowledge. That involves learning to persevere in prayer until there is breakthrough into true fellowship with God. doesn't mean just praying for a few minutes. It means really seeking God with maybe an hour or two hours a day. No, there's no set formula. God, speak to your own heart about those things. 
But it says here, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I also will reject thee. Now, when I look at the few bit of notes that I've set on this, we also see here some very meaningful things that I've found in the meaning of various words in this particular passage. It emphasizes in this passage of scripture about whoredoms. It talks about the spirit of whoredoms. It says, for example, in verse 10, for they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. See, they've left off taking heed to who God is in his very being. Therefore, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. So the heart is taken away. And then it says this in verse 12, my people ask counsel at their stocks and their staff declareth unto them. In other words, they were into superstitious practices to get guidance. And then it says this, for the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err. And they have gone a whoring from under their God. Now, we know that whoredoms is another word for adultery. And if you look this word up, it's zana. And it means to commit adultery. But if you look up the very original meaning that's discovered in the ancient letters which were symbol language, it is interesting what the symbol is on whoredoms. The letter symbol Zayan is the symbol of the instrument used to cut down the harvest, and that's the first letter. Then the next letter is of a sprouted seed. And so you've got something that's cutting down a sprouted seed, and then there's another sprouted seed. And there's various variations of this word whor. Another one has, instead of two sprouted seeds, after the instrument that cuts them down, it has instead one sprouted seed and then a man standing, which represents awe and breath and something that's very fulfilling and beautiful. And so in whoredoms, there's this there's two sprouted, sprouted seeds. So you're cutting something down because you're trying to get fulfillment out of something that has life in her that will give you fulfillment represented in the sprouted seed. And then you've got to cut it again. You can never be satisfied. That's basically the picture that's being shown here. Because you have to keep cutting it and keep cutting it. And that... I like to illustrate like this. It's like a black hole in outer space. Our being was created only to be satisfied in fellowship with God. But when we choose to allow the baits of this world that can be used to manipulate us by higher powers, and we grasp after those things seeking for fulfillment, there's always an emptiness inside like a black hole in outer space that is always pulling everything into it in a destructive way. And so there's corruption in our being. And our choices are less than the highest lasting good. We're making choices that are always going towards our own hurt and the hurt of others. God is calling us to repent of the spirit of adultery that is seeking satisfaction in the temporal things of this life. Says in Jonah, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. May we be those that choose to fear God, that choose to look at God and to focus on him through a life of prayer that gives us an identity in him that swallows up the delusion within our inner being that would grasp after what will never really satisfy, though we feel it will satisfy us. It always leaves one empty and more empty and more desperate to feel, fill the void of corruption within us. 
God is calling his people to recognize the importance of coming to the knowledge of who he is. And I want to go on and share another word, and that is the word heir that is mentioned in this verse. It says, the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err. And so I looked up the meaning of the word err, which is taha, and it means to vacillate, to reel, or to stray. But it is very interesting what the meaning is in the original symbolic letters from 2000 BC, between 2000 BC and 1500 BC. The first letter is the letter of the cross, exactly like the plus symbol or the symbol of the cross that Christ died on. That was the symbol that was used back then. And it is the letter Tav, which means a symbol or a sign. That is the first letter. Then the next letter is an I. And so in this case, what you have is someone saying, putting the cross behind them because the eye, the cross is first and then the eye comes. So the eye is kind of behind. And you're saying, oh, I, I don't want to see the cross. I'm putting the cross behind me. I want to see things my way. And that's the understanding. It is ignoring the symbol, the plus symbol I talked about. The first being the negative which is the holiness of God, the integrity of his love, and the second being the mercy that springs out of that in this symbol of the cross, the, cro the plus symbol. And so there's two eyes after the cross for the word deceive. And for the word error, there's one eye after the cross, the symbol of an eye. There's another Word. There's different words that are used with slight different variation. And so that is, and deceit is the cross, and then a letter that was used to peg a tent down. It was a symbol of the peg for a tent. So it's saying, I peg things down, putting the cross behind me, and I see it this way. So again, it's ignoring who God is. It is failing to choose to fear God. When we truly fear God, we are recognizing God is ultimately trustworthy because only that quality of being that can be ultimately trustworthy is what I described as the love of God. There can be nothing higher than what I described as love and anything less of a description would not be the ultimate perfection of love. It is only seen in the symbol of the cross that is First, the holiness of God, out of which springs the mercy of God, which therein reveals the love of God. In this passage of Scripture, we see that the solution to overcoming the spirit of whoredoms and adultery is to return to the fear of God and to humble ourselves. God is calling his people in these days, to repent and to come back to their first love, to repent of so many things that have drawn them away from a close relationship with God. I just want to point out this other passage that I received on Monday. It says in verse 11, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Here again, we see that it is the fear of God that is emphasized in relation to his mercy. And there are many verses throughout the Psalms and in the various passages in the word of God that always equate the fear of God with the recognition of the mercy of God. For example, Psalms thirty-three eighteen says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Psalms 103.11 says, For as the heavens is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Fearing God is that choice to recognize God in his holiness and out of that to recognize God in his mercy. But the 
Psalms 103.17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. Psalms 118.4 says, Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. Proverbs 16.6 says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Mercy and truth. Remember, that's what we were talking about. First, there's truth, and then there's mercy. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The last half of that verse is saying the same thing as the first part in a different way. It is saying that in the fear of God, there is the recognition of the truth of God and the mercy of God. And Psalms 5, 7 says, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. And so we could go on with various verses that are describing this. I just want to share with you now that God is calling his people in these last days as assemblies, as congregations, to return back to their first love. And that means choosing to fear God because many of us have lost the genuine fear of God. When you come together in your congregation, make your gathering and assembly around Christ a house or an assembly of prayer, of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Churches complain that there's no prayer meetings or few people come to the prayer meeting. It's about time you made the church service itself a prayer meeting, where you get down in your faces leadership before God and humble yourselves, where the congregation gets down in their faces and humbles themselves and learns to be in awe of who God is until there's a deep turning in one's heart out of the fear of God that births genuine revelation so that you see the beauty of the glory of God in such a way that you cannot contain it within you. And so you begin to be filled with adulation and praise as you describe the glory of what you are seeing in songs, new songs that God gives you that are prophetic songs that come out of creativity and deep joy. Leadership needs to repent of controlling the congregation, not allowing them to move in the gifts of the Spirit out of this purity that comes out of the fear of God. It is this that will bring a true humility among one another so that we, as it were, will have love to see beyond one another's faults because we see the greatness of God's love and mercy to us so that we, as it were, choose to wash one another's feet with the word of God, esteeming one another better than ourselves. This allows when the leadership repents of controlling the congregation and not facilitating them to move in the gifts of the Spirit. It allows more abundant honor, as Paul said, that there should be more abundant honor that comes upon the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body. In other words, when the spirit of control is broken, a more powerful gift can fall on those that are not looked up to, that are not so attractive in the natural, so that it humbles those that tend to be looked up to, so that pride is broken. For by pride comes division, comes contention. The valleys are raised, the mountains are brought down. The crooked places are made smooth. The rough places are made straight. And then we are knit together as living stones so that the glory of God is seen in our midst. And we are more conscious of Christ walking in our midst than of the leader preaching a message or of anyone else. But we are all filled in great liberty to express the word of God out of pure motives of humility and love to edify one another. That is what God's strategy is for turning our nations back to God. We need to repent of the gods of amusement and of idleness. We watch so much sports, but we hardly pray and seek God. We've allowed the gods of amusement to take up our time and our focus. And we've lost out in a relationship of intimacy with God. 
And we need to repent of these things in the churches across North America and Canada and around the world. And come into this unity that God is calling us to. This is the strategy to conquer our nation. If we do not do this, then there will be great judgment. There will be far greater that will come upon the land. God have mercy on us that we take our communities by becoming a beachhead for God's presence in our community to come down in power and glory like it did in the Welsh revival, like it did in Azusa Street. Except this time to not be entrapped by pride and divisiveness, but to go on in a new wineskin that allows and facilitates Christ to come down and be the head over the body in the order that is of God instead of man, so that we have the restoration of being his temple of habitation that will bring forth his temple ultimately to consummate in Jerusalem in the restoration of his temple and him returning to his temple in Jerusalem. That is the word that God is giving to you as an individual into the body of Christ. Choose to fear God, to seek him until there is that genuine circumcision of that heart of the heart, that genuine intimacy with God that brings love also for one another. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message.